0: our time with you and it's sad as he was just speaking about so many that have departed from the faith and just thinking about Judas as he was mentioning and I'm sure you've heard the expression before but the man that kissed the very door of heaven and went to hell and what a sad thing uh, for people to be so close and yet so far away from Christ and so I invite you if you would to take your Bibles this afternoon and turn with me to Psalm, 80, uh, Psalm 85 this morning, I mean afternoon, Psalm 85, <clears throat> Psalm 85, and let us hear the word of the Lord. We'll read the entirety of the Psalm, Psalm 85. Oh, on, oh I'm sorry. I was going to ask you about that, but I wasn't sure. All right, I can do that in just a second. Our scripture reading again from Psalm 85. Let us hear the word of the Lord. To the chief musician, a psalm for the sons of Korah Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Selah. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Will thou be angry with us forever? Will thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth. And righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good. And our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before Him and shall set us in the way of His steps. We trust the Lord will add His blessing to the reading of His own holy and errant An infallible word, let us unite our hearts together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we come before thee, we again acknowledge how desperately we need thee. God, again, as the hymn writer said, all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. And Lord, we recognize that all of our efforts, all of our singing, even the preaching of thy word this moment, is vain unless it is empowered and and endued by Thy Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that You would come upon the preached Word. God, You promised to bless the foolishness of preaching. You have chosen to use the foolishness of preaching to save those which would believe. Lord, we pray that You would come upon the preacher today. Give me that unction, that function of the Spirit of the living God to declare the unsearchable riches of Christ. Lord, I pray again that You'd make me as it were an oracle of God. That, God, that You would open up my mouth. And that, God, that You would fill it with words from heaven. Lord, we want to be careful to give You all the glory. Lord, I do also pray that You'd be with all those that would be listening. As, no doubt, tiredness and slumberness could come upon them, I pray, O God, as we have just sung about, Revive Thy work, O God, and disturb the sleep of death. Lord, save us from the folding of the hands to sleep at this moment. the Lord, that we be attentive to thy word. And that God, that you'd grip our hearts by it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are living in a day within our country where sadly a lethargy lies over much of the church. And sadly, here in these United States of America, 75 to 150 churches are closing every week. Churches that you no doubt have driven across, across this great state of New York and other parts of this Northeast, that once were bulwarks for the faith, have turned against the gospel truth and have become apostate, And pulpits that now preach theological liberalism. And they preach wokeness. But thank God there's churches like this. Where once they preached a Unitarian Universalist gospel. And now the gospel sounds from this pulpit. Sadly, today social justice has pervaded many churches and denominations. And salvations and baptisms are declining In conservative denominations all across America, interest in the prayer meetings are at an all-time low in conservative churches. Doctrine is considered something that is just divisive, something that we should not talk about. And large sections of our country have abandoned the faith of our fathers and lie unevangelized. I submit unto you that what the church needs at this juncture in history is revival. More than ever, we need to keep this text before us, our text for our message, Psalm 85, verse 6. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? And I want to focus just briefly this afternoon on this thought. We need revival. We need revival. Oh, my friends, we say it so often, but do we really mean what we are speaking? Do we really realize how desperately we need a moving of the Holy Spirit? The first thing I want you to see with me in this text is that we need to remember past revival. Look with me in our text, Wilt thou not revive us Again. That little word, again. Here's a memory of past revival. Spurgeon, regarding this psalm, said this, that this is the prayer of a patriot for his afflicted country in which he pleads for the Lord's former mercies and by faith foresees brighter days. Here, David is pleading the cause of afflicted Israel he is recalling the former days of glory. No doubt I can see David and here in my mind's eye as he is recalling the glorious history of Israel. He no doubt recalls the passing over of the Red Sea. And he remembers as Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt and they came to the Red Sea. There is a Red Sea before them. There is Pharaoh's armies behind them. There is fear within them. But God was above them, ready to deliver them and bring them safely to the other side. And you read that when they made it to the other side, that Miriam and Moses and them began to dance and to sing praises unto God for such a glorious deliverance. I can imagine David remembering the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that guided them. Even recalling how Joshua brought the ark and the priests brought the ark to the very brink of the river Jordan. And as soon as they dipped their toes in the water, how the water parted and became as a wall on each side and they crossed over dry shod and God gave Joshua all the land that He promised to the nation. There was a building of the tabernacle and there was the glory of God coming down and descending upon it and filling it so much so that the priests were not able to enter in to minister because of the glory of God. No doubt even remembering the miraculous deliverance of the judges, how Israel would get into a state of decline and God would raise them up a deliverer. And that Hebrew word in the book of Judges for deliverer is the word for Savior. And God would raise someone up to save them and deliver them. But here in our text, Israel is again in a state of decline In spiritual lethargy, she needs to be revived again. I submit to you, my friends, that we as a nation and a church find ourselves in a state of decline, morally and spiritually. The fervency of evangelism that was seen past generations lies silent in the grave. The church has sought to come as close to the world as possible without compromising. So they think and they say, the church needs to be revived. But what do I mean? I've been using that word revival. What do we mean when we use the word revival? What is revival? Let me just give you a few definitions. Duncan Campbell, the great preacher the Lord used for the Isle of Lewis revival, In Scotland in the 1950s said this. He said, revival is a community saturated with God. Richard Owens Roberts said that revival is an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. Christmas Evans said it very vividly. He said, revival is God bending down to the dying embers Of a fire that is just about to go out and breathing into it until it bursts again into flame. Adrian Rogers said it simply this way Revival is simply God coming down. And is that not what Isaiah 64, verse 1 says? Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. My friend, I want you to know this afternoon that God delights and loves to come down. God came down in a pillar of fire, and a pillar of smoke to lead His people. God came down and filled the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, in the temple with His glory. Jesus stepped out of heaven and came down to save us. The Holy Spirit at Pentecost came down baptizing the early church with power. And praise be to God, the day is coming when Jesus is coming down again at His second coming. Friend, I want you to mark it down. God wants to come down and visit His church with revival. And I want you... To remember, I call you to remember the former days and the beauty of them. God has moved in revival and awakening in our country multiple times and we should plead for Him to do it again. I think about the time of the first great awakening within our country. As the Puritans had fled from England, they came, as you know, to the Massachusetts Bay, and there was the Massachusetts Bay Colonies, and they established congregational churches all over New England. These churches were essentially churches that held to the Westminster Standards, but chose rather to believe in a congregational polity, but they were very much reformed. And they began to preach the gospel, and God richly blessed, but there came in something known as the Halfway Covenant where it brought many unbelievers into the church, and the church began to enter into a state of decline. It was then some years after this took place that God raised up a mighty preacher in Massachusetts and Connecticut by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And you know, you no doubt remember that wonderful sermon he preached that God so mightily used from his text in Deuteronomy that your foot shall slide in due time. And he preached that text, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And you recount how people held on to the pillars of the church and held on to the pews, fearing that any moment that their, foot, that their feet would slide and drop down into hell, that the very earth beneath them would open up and swallow them as God did to the sons of Korah. God might have removed across New England. God used the preaching of a man in the same time period by the name of George Whitfield. It was so mightily used, it was said that more people saw George Whitfield than they ever saw the President of the United States. That he was such a well-known figure everywhere as he went. He preached, and it's a story recorded by Whitfield that one man asked him, they said, Mr. Whitfield, how come every single time you go to a particular area, you always preach on John 3 that you must be born again? And his response was, he said, "Young man, because Jesus said, "You must be born again." Amen. And so George Whitfield was mightily used. There was a mighty moving of the spirit, and then in the 1790s into the 1800s, there was revival stirrings in Kentucky and Tennessee. But far removed from this area, there's an area that really interests me. and there's in New England in particular. Amongst the Reformed, in particular Baptists, in 1780 to 1820, you can read instances of 25 to 50 people converted at a time in churches being established. And I, you'll see a picture in my slideshow when we go downstairs. But one of the ministers that God used so greatly was a man by the name of Isaac Case. He was born in Rehoboth, Massachusetts at age 18, he was converted to Christ. In 1783, he had a letter read to him by the Reverend Isaac Bacchus. This letter was sent by a preacher from the new territory of Maine, pleading for men to come to Lincoln County, Maine, because of the need of laborers. And when Isaac Bacchus read this letter to Isaac Case, he was so moved by the letter that immediately he set off for Maine. He was already doing missions work in north central Massachusetts into Vermont and had already planted some churches. But it was then upon reading this letter, he was soon ordained and sent as a preacher at large to the area of Maine. And this man, who you likely have never heard about, Isaac Case, I believe was the greatest church planter that America has ever seen. He planted over 300 Reformed Baptist churches in Maine, Vermont, Massachusetts, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. He traveled all over preaching Christ. Everywhere else he went, as soon as he crossed uh, the New Hampshire border and he went across the Kennebec River into Maine, he said that, I found the fields already white. And here's an account from his diary while he was in Thomaston, Maine, down on the coast while he was preaching and multitudes were coming to Christ, he said, I think I have seen more of the power and the glory of our God since I have been in these parts than ever I saw before. Poor, shelterless souls fleeing to Christ for shelter and praising the Lord for free grace through the merits of Christ's righteousness which runs down our streets like mighty streams. The eyes of the blind are open and the ears of the deaf are unstopped." It was in that same time period Mr. Case was having a baptismal service baptizing a number of people that had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said that after baptizing five persons who had been previously received as candidates he said a woman came forward to the water and desired baptism. She was informed that if she believed in Christ with all her heart she might. She then related what the Lord had done for her soul which relation events that she had experienced a true work of renewing and saving grace. And consequently, she was received as a proper subject for baptism. But note this, he says this in his diary. He said, while preparing to go down into the water, her husband came forward filled with anger and great rage and threatened to kill himself if his wife was baptized. The husband was warned of his guilt and danger. And the wife was baptized instead of suicide. The man was slain by the law of God and then made alive by the blood of Christ. What a wonderful testimony. Here, God was doing something great. He also used the man in that same time period, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Haverhill, Massachusetts, the Reverend Hezekiah Smith, who was a Reformed Baptist minister, And as Hezekiah, as Isaac Case began to plant all these churches in Maine, in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Massachusetts, Hezekiah Smith was sending men to go and to pastor these works. And as soon as this began to die down, we move into the second great awakening. And I think about one of the great preachers that God used, the Reverend Ashel Nettleton, who was a congregational evangelist, so mightily used of the Lord He was mightily used here in New York State as well. And there is estimated some 30,000 souls that came to Christ underneath His ministry. Just earlier yesterday I was reading and they said that if you were to take into account the number of people living today and put that same number back into uh, into, uh, Ashell Nettleton's ministry, that if a man had the same type of ministry as Ashell Nettleton Uh, did today that approximately 600,000 souls would have been converted to Christ. That's the the approximate guesstimate based upon our current population. And as you know, your minister has no doubt spoken to you about the 1950s Isle of Lewis revival And Duncan Campbell, I can hear it if you've never heard Duncan Campbell's account of the revival. On the Isle of Lewis, you've got to leave this building this afternoon. Go and listen to sermon audio. Find Duncan Campbell's personal account. It will bless your heart about what God had done. And I can still hear it in my mind. Duncan Campbell's Scottish brogue as he said, God came down. And how God visited such a small little place you might be here today thinking, Pastor, you just don't understand. We're in such a small little place. Certainly God is not interested about this little place in Boston, New York. Oh, my friend, God is very much interested. God is very interested. when as people cry out to Him, I think about the little place where I lived in Maine, in northern Maine, where He had planted a church. And I began to wonder in that Northern the Noristic County area of Maine in which we lived on the New Brunswick border, if God had ever stepped down and moved in that area. And in 1949, I found an account of Dr. Bob Jones Sr. coming and preaching in Presque Maine. And between 50 to 200 potato farmers were saved each night at those meetings. And there's still the testimony of it with churches that have been established because of those meetings. My friends, I ask you, will you say as the psalmist "Wilt Thou not revive us again, that Thy people may rejoice in Thee? My friends, are you longing for a moving of the Spirit in our day? Some of you that have been saved for any length of time, you may remember days of past blessing within the church. Don't you long for God to do it again? I long for revival. I've never seen revival in my life. I've read a whole lot about it, but I've never seen it. And it's been my prayer that God would graciously send a moving of a spirit. And what God did then, He is well able to perform today. Let us believe and lay hold of the promises. There is the memory of past revival. But what you also see in our text here, not only do we need to remember past revival, but we need to identify the person of revival. Wilt thou not revive us again? Notice who the person of revival is. It is thou, it is the Lord. There's something you and I must understand. Revival is not something that is brought down by man. But it is sovereignly sent by God. Wilt thou not revive us again? Man cannot schedule revival. Oh, there's churches you might drive by, they have their revival meeting signs. You cannot schedule a revival. And I understand what they're doing. Man cannot through, quote, new measures, bring revival. What do I mean by that? Well, this comes from Charles Finney, who essentially, essentially said, if you do X, Y, and Z then you will get the result of a revival. So he essentially boiled down revival to a mathematical equation. That if you and I do this, do this, do this, and revival will come. You say, but preacher, you just don't understand. If we only had the right men come and preach, then revival would come. But there's something you must understand as well. Man does not carry revival in his pocket. Dr. Alan Cairns that preached down at the Greenville Church for so many years did not and could not bring revival. Dr. Ian Paisley, the founder of our denomination, did not and could not bring revival. Oh, praise God. He experienced it to some degree in his ministry that he was not the one that brought it in. It was sovereignly brought by God. When I think about the Reformers and Jonathan Edwards... George Whitfield, John Wesley, Asa Middleton, Isaac Case, and Duncan Campbell, not a one was a generator of revival. These were men who were but vessels through which the Spirit flowed. Oh, you might say, well, if we just had the right programs. Oh, yes. We just had the right programs, the right children's ministry. We had Awana. We had all these various ministries. We had youth group. We had all this stuff. Then, yes, 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 then God would send revival. Or if we just had the right kind of altar call, people would respond to their need. And if the preacher uses enough emotional tactics that lead the congregation into weeping and feigning, oh, yes, then we would have revival. Or if maybe just the right kind of music was played at the end of the service, then we could generate an emotional response. But these responses many times lead to emotional change but no lasting fruit. Or oh, the preacher, if we just had an around-the-clock prayer meeting at the church a number of weeks before special meetings, then revival would come. Or, you know, if we just read Scripture more every day, then revival would come. Well, how much more Scripture do you have to read every day? you have to read five more minutes a day? Ten more minutes a day? A half hour a day? Well, if we were just more ecumenical, and we gathered with other churches, then we would have revival. For did not Jesus say He desired us just all to be one? Let's just throw down all our doctrinal barriers. Let's just love Jesus. And let's just yoke up with everyone that has somehow lays hold of the name of Jesus, oh yes, that will bring revival, so many people think. If we were just more aggressive in our evangelistic team at church, then we would know revival. If every person in our church just told one soul about Jesus, oh no, then we would know revival. But you must understand, just because you pray, you fast, you read your Bible you evangelize for a certain amount of time in your own personal life, it does not mean that you will necessarily get revived, because we must remember that God is the sovereign of it. But this does not mean that we should not do these things. For these are indeed an evidence of a heart that has been revived by God. The problem with the above-mentioned ideas of some of these things I've shared with you is that many think that they can bring sovereign God down from heaven by their actions and prayers alone. As if He is a genie in the Bible. And if you just uh, wish certain things, rub the lamp a certain way, then God will do whatever you ask Him to do. They fail to see that while God delights in some of these things that I have mentioned, they are not an end in and of themselves. To think that we can cause revival is akin to thinking that we can cause our own regeneration. It is impossible. We must remember that it is God that miraculously stirred in, I think about Haggai 1 in verse 14, that God stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and He stirred up the hearts of the politicians and the leaders and the people to do and to build a work for God. And it is God that we must trust to stir the hearts of His people still. Oh, how much more is accomplished when God stirs the heart rather than just mere emotion alone. Habakkuk recognized this. Habakkuk recognized that God is the sovereign of revival. For he said, O Lord, wilt Thou not revive Thy work in the midst of the years? In the midst of the years make known and wrath remember mercy. Habakkuk recognized that not only is the Lord the sovereign of revival, but He is sovereign over the work. Revive thy work. This isn't my work. This isn't Pastor Owen's work. This isn't anyone's work, but the Lord Jesus. This is the Lord's church. It's His work. Lord, we ask you that you would send revival to thy work. And we must beg the God of heaven to breathe a life back into His church and cause our heart to burst into flame again. We must prophesy into the breath and ask God to breathe a life back into the dry bones that so we might hear a rattling and a coming together bone to bone, sinew to sinew, flesh to flesh. May we pray and plead with God into the places shaken where we are gathered together. Acts 4 and verse 31. For God will set His people of praying before He revives them. You mark it down. Each revival you read about in days gone by, As I said to you, we can't do anything to bring about revival, but we must understand God uses means to accomplish His sovereign purpose. And God will set His people praying before He revives them. You read about all these movements of God I have spoken about already, and you will find that they all go back to some prayer meeting of people, young people, women, men getting together, Burdened about a particular thing, where did that burden come from? It came from God. And when God puts a real burden upon a people, God begins to move. The last thing I want to share with you about this text not only do we see the person of revival, and not only do we see uh, the past revival, but the last thing we see is the product of revival. Wilt thou not revive us again? that thy people may rejoice in thee. Oh, here it is. What is the product of this revival? It is rejoicing. It is joy. How will one know that revivals come? The people will rejoice in God. God loves to see His children happy and joyful in Him. For this brings the utmost joy to the hearts of men. As our catechism says, What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So when revival comes, church is no longer a bore. God's people will have joy unspeakable and full of glory in their heart. Spurgeon gets to the very heart of the matter when he says those who are revived would rejoice not only in new life, but in the Lord who is the author of it. Hear what Spurgeon says. He says, Joy in the Lord is the ripest fruit of grace. All revivals and renewals lead up to it. He says that by our possession of it, we may estimate our spiritual condition. It is a sure gauge of our inward prosperity. Now hear this. He goes on to say this. A genuine revival without joy. In the Lord is as impossible as spring without flowers and day dawn without light. If either in our own souls or in the hearts of others we see declension, it becomes us to be much in the use of this prayer. But if on the other hand we are enjoying visitations of the Spirit and the doings of grace, let us abound in holy joy and make it our constant delight to joy in God. My friends, how desperately we need the joy of the Lord today. And where does this joy come from? It comes from Christ. The joy of Christ gives no one can take away from you. My joy I give unto you. It is the joy of the Lord which is to be our strength. Nehemiah 8 and verse 10. And maybe you're here this afternoon and you feel totally destitute of joy. I encourage you to go back to the source. Go back to Christ and ask the Lord to revive your heart again that you might find yourself rejoicing in Him. And may the joy that no one can take away be very evident in our lives. So I ask you, is the joy of the Lord your portion today? If so, you know a measure of revival in your own life. But rejoicing is not the only fruit of revival. When revival comes to the church, then awakening often comes to the community. Revival has a positive effect then upon our land. For when the church gets revived and stirred by the Holy Spirit, then God's people get moving and going with the gospel of grace. And when they get going with the gospel of grace, then souls get saved. Churches get planted. But another fruit of revival is the calling of men to preach the Word and men and women to the mission field and how desperately we need the raising up of men to preach the Gospel. And as I shared with your pastor the other day, I'm very much burdened about the Northeast area. And there's are so many little towns scattered across the Northeast. And my friends, if the Northeast is not reached for Christ, we're in serious trouble. We must reach this area for Christ. We must beg the Lord of the harvest that He raise up men, launch them out into all these little villages and hamlets and towns and cities all across the Northeast. As I'll share with you when we go downstairs, there's dreadful statistics about the land and the area in which we live. Another fruit of revival is greater personal and corporate holiness. When God's people revive, they have a greater sense of their own sin, greater desire to be closer to God, and there is a greater work within the church of God. And when there is sin in the camp, God has a way of getting it out when revival comes. I'll never forget one of the services I was in down in Bogalusa, Louisiana, at the Bensford Baptist Church. I remember they were having a Bible conference. And one minister was asked to come and preach. And I remember he was preaching several nights. There must have been about the fourth night of the meeting. And the church was filled with capacity. It sat about 700 people. And I remember one of the ladies, she got up and she began to sing an opening song on the piano. She began to sing that hymn, I dreamed of a city called Glory, so bright and so fair. And I remember as soon as she began to sing the Spirit of God... Came rushing in, and that might sound very subjective to you, but I want you to understand what I'm saying. Just hear me out to what I'm saying. I remember as soon as she began to sing in that large auditorium, I remember people standing up on one side of the church, and other people standing up on the other. And I remember seeing them as I sat in the middle, these people coming and embracing with tears in their eyes. And they were coming together and they were asking each other to be forgiven. They were asking for forgiveness of past sins done and past wrongs done. And I remember the church had so much sin in the camp. This went on for about an hour. People hugging each other and praying and getting things right. In the middle of the church, it was one of the sweetest services I've ever been in in my life. God, my friends, came down and dealt with these issues in the church. And a church that hadn't seen much happen in years. Once these things got right in the church, I remember speaking to the minister that the next weeks there were multitudes of people that were coming to Christ and people being baptized and people joining the church. The Lord had come down and visited and dealt with the congregation. And my friend, God is well able to do the same today. Might we be like machine and desire greater holiness and make us as holy as a pardoned sinner? Can possibly be. So I ask you, do you long for these fruits of revival today? Do you long to see it? It is right to pray for them, but I want you to realize that these things come from a supernatural moving of the Holy Spirit. But to what end do we pray for revival? Do we pray for it just because we want our churches to have more people? Do we pray for it just because we want to look good numerically? To what end do we pray for revival? I believe Joshua answers it for us in Joshua 4.24. He says this, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. I think this is the great end of revival, that all the earth might know the hand of the Lord that it is mighty to move in the hearts of God's people, that the hand of the Lord is mighty to save, and that the fear of the Lord would encompass our land, that we might experience what I believe is written in the book of Isaiah, that fearfulness will encompass round about the hypocrites. Let us pray for heaven-sent, God-glorifying, Spirit-empowered revival. And let us trust the sovereign Lord descended when He pleases. Pray that God's people may find themselves rejoicing in Him. My friend, do not lose hope. Do not lose hope. As I shared with you this morning, our Lord is ascended. He's seated on the right hand. He all power and all dominion now. And He is able to send revival even this day. And it's not the darkness of our present day. Does not it even present a greater opportunity for revival? For God delights to shine the light in the darkest of times. So may we soon say, as we read in 1 Kings 18.41, Get thee up, for there is a sound of an abundance of rain. Amen. Amen. Let us pray.